Welcome, listener, to the second season of Bob's Just Asking. The premise of this podcast is that I surround myself with super talented and knowledgeable people, and I ask them questions to gain a little insight into their expertise. Sometimes those questions are born out of utter ignorance. I have huge deficits in my knowledge, and figure some of you do too, so I'll take one for the team and publicly admit it. The debut episode of season one featured an interview with my friend Tom Bowers, a podcaster. And today's season two debut episode repeats the formula as I chatted with Daniel Lazar, high school social studies teacher, podcaster, sometimes roommate, and friend. I greatly admire Daniel's introspective nature, his thoughtfulness, and his craftsmanship. I think you will too. Daniel Lazar, welcome to Bob's Just Asking. Hey, Bob, thanks for having me on Bob's Just Asking. I got to tell you, I'm wicked grateful for the opportunity to, to reflect on my project. And, you know, I should say, as you know, I've been tuning in and I really dig your podcast. Like, there's an earnestness to it. It's so true to form, like your curiosity, your thirst for knowledge and expertise it's quintessentially Bob, and that really shines through in your first season. So, so hey, man, congrats on launching season two. And though you might hear it, I'm a little bit nervous to be on this side of the interview. Uh, I'm thrilled to launch season two with you. So thanks. Thanks a lot for inviting me to, to be in conversation with you. I appreciate it. Thank you for your kind words, and I think we can just cut the interview right there. We're good. Done. <laughs> done and done. Good night, Bob. <laughs> So I, I just want, I don't think I've ever asked you uh, this question. Uh, you go by Daniel. I do. Not Dan. Yeah. What's that about? <laughs> I'll tell you. So I was a young Danny growing up, and I was Dan well into my adult life. And then I moved to Barcelona in 2005, and the name Dan just did not exist. Like, people didn't know how to say it. It was impossible. And so I could either be a Danny like a, like a Danny, which made me feel like a child, or I could be Daniel, and uh, that's why Daniel. I totally relate to that. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I would have had this exact same experience, and I was a Bobby growing up, and uh, I am definitely not that today. But you've chosen not about... to be Robert. Hold on, you can't push me into this corner without helping me out of it by asking. <laughs> you could easily be a Robert. But... I don't like the name at all. Hmm. I just... It, it sounds so Robert, you know, it sounds so uh, stuffy. And Rob is really bad. Yeah. Even though my work husband is named Rob and I adore him, uh, I had to say that. Uh, I just don't like the name. So let's talk about studs. What was the genesis of your studs podcast? Uh, was it something to do during the, the pandemic, a uh, way to connect to people? Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I got to say, I really love that you start there. Because I have a real fondness for Genesis stories, in part probably because Genesis stories are, by their nature, usually messy. And I suppose the Genesis story of the Studs Pod's no different. You know, the long version of the story probably runs parallel to my own personal Genesis story. You know, like, like many Jews of his generation, 
Uh, my father fetishized work. You know, he was a company man through and through. 60, 70 to hour work weeks, week after week, year after year, for 40 years at Kellogg Cereal. And his work defined him, you know, for better and for worse. I'm not really even sure that he questioned it. It was just who he was. He was a worker. And that was kind of the ethos in my house. Uh, so much so <laughs> that when I turned 12, my dad forged my birth certificate so I could work at Uncle Freddy's Red Hots. Like I wore a pink shirt that said, eat here or we both starve. And as like an obese 13-year-old, uh, fake 13-year-old, as an obese 12-year-old, nobody would have thought that I was starving. And I'm sure there were jokes behind my back. But like the hot dog joint is kind of where it all began for me. And from there, I worked at a poolside concession stand. Uh, I later became a lifeguard. I managed a Dairy Queen. I was a registered jockey at, at least three joints. Uh, I hosted birthday parties for toddlers. Uh, I bust tables at one restaurant. I waited tables at a couple others. Uh, one summer, I sold toys door to door out of the trunk of my car. I was a janitor at a strip mall gym. Bob, that was all before I graduated high school, okay? So I was a jack of all trades, but now, just like you, man, I'm on a decades-long journey to be a master of one. You know, I've been teaching history and politics for two decades, uh, first in Chicagoland, then Barcelona, and for the last 13 years in Berlin, Germany. So, like, that's the context for the Genesis story. But honestly, I think, like, the seed of my pod was planted in Berlin on International Workers' Day. Right. May Day, 2020, uh, in the throes of the early stages of the pandemic, my fellow Berliners and I, like, we just couldn't celebrate the contributions of workers the way we usually do. And it turned out that May Day in Berlin was, like, hauntingly quiet. And I spent a lot of time that May Day reflecting on how neither Germans nor Americans ever really figured out how to honor work. You know, the COVID crisis forced us to reconsider workers. You, you probably remember, Bob, you remember these like, uh, what would we call them? The essential workers? Yeah. 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 Like just regular working stiffs who for a hot minute were seen as essential. Or sometimes, you remember this, they were heroes, right? If you were a grocery yeah. store clerk, you're a hero. So listen, like some of my favorite moments on my podcast are when I learn about like the moment that it all changes for my guest. Let me ask you this. In New York or New Jersey, in the early months of the pandemic, did you all have those public displays where like you would clap and yell and bang drums right. out the window, right? For the, yeah, you had yeah, those? Yeah, like five o'clock. Yeah, yeah. So we had a few of those. And I remember the first one. I was hanging out my fifth floor apartment window, like furiously banging on a pot with a wooden spoon. And I was yelling and screaming. And then really soon I began sobbing, like really sobbing. And it was like, I don't know, man, like just for like a moment there, workers were being honored. But still, you know, you and I, man, like we operate in this economic framework that it doesn't honor work. And we inhabit this cultural context that renders work like a thing we do so we can have the security we need and buy the stuff we want to live a good life. 
you know, but Bob, you know this, like that very framing, the one where we have a work-life balance, it's all built on this, like, I don't know, I don't know how you put it. Like, it's like a false premise, like work is one thing and life is another, but it's just not that simple. So I guess my humble little podcast tries to explore some of the nuances, you know, some of the complexities of work in the 2020s. And in the process of doing it, I've had the pleasure of empathically engaging with good, hardworking people, you know, and hopefully closing the social distance a bit. So, yeah, I mean, like, that's that's like a version of the Genesis story. Um, it gets messier than that, I suppose. And I don't know, maybe we'll dive into some of that messiness today if you want to. Well, sure. The For, for starters, obviously, the, the show is named after Studs Terkel, the uh, journalist who wrote Working. You essentially just talked about the affinity that you have for the work that he did without naming him. But could you talk a little bit about how the show evolved from your initial premise of, I guess, uh, highlighting uh, the work that people do in the mode of Studs Circle to where it is now? So maybe I should start here. You know, for your listeners who don't know Studs Terkel, uh, he was a fixture on my very own Chicago radio station, WFMT. Uh, he interviewed people from all walks of life. And he seemed equally interested in corporate heads and custodians. You know, he was equally engaged by singers and secretaries and civil rights leaders. And he also wrote oral histories, amplifying the sometimes lost voices of common folks. And in the mid-70s, he published a book with this bumbling title of Working. People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. It was like a terrible title. Uh, but despite the title, Working became a bestseller. It totally invigorated the field of oral history. Incidentally, it also became a Broadway musical somehow because... I don't know. I, I haven't seen it. I just can't. I won't. Uh, but I did read the book in 1996 when I was a university student, and it shaped the way I, I teach. It shaped the way I, I approach history. It shaped the way I learn. Um, it just challenged my thinking about working, and it really forced me to reconsider that litany of jobs I had before I began teaching. You know, studs made me care about work, and workers, and working in a more precise and a, a more intense way. You know, studs heightened my empathy levels. Studs Turkel made me a better person. So this podcast has been, in a way, my tribute to Studs Turkel, uh, who I love. And that said, after six seasons, I guess I'm announcing this here, it's dawning on me now, that I'm, I'm just this week... I committed to changing the title. Well, did did uh, did you find that people were uh, not finding the show, or they were they were finding the show and they thought it was going to be something a revival of the nineteen nineties dating show? Oh, with Mark DiCarlo, another great Chicagoan. <laughs> yes. You you remember that show? That's that's actually what the show is named after. The whole stud circle thing was a ruse. I'm just a huge Mark DiCarlo fan. I wonder if that guy's still around. I'll tell you what it is. Um, and if you'll forgive me for, you know, being a little too inside baseball uh, and maybe being a little too vulnerable here, the, 
the fact is, um, you know, my wife's mother bought me a Zoom H2 microphone in 2008 because I wanted to start a podcast. I didn't start a podcast till 2020. <laughs> and the reason I didn't is because I didn't have the courage to do it. I'm not an early adopter of many things, but I got into podcasts really early. And I desperately wanted to, to, to start a podcast. And I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. And then, you know, when the pandemic hit and there was this time created for me and I was feeling a certain sense of isolation, I really... Uh, had this urge, this impulse to try to contribute something to the marketplace of ideas. But I didn't have the courage to make it about me. And so I guess, although I didn't fully realize it at the time, I made it about Studs Terkel. I made it a tribute to to someone else. And that was what kind of empowered me to take the first big steps into conceiving the podcast. But um, the title was always a bit vexed for that reason, right? Because I knew it was, in my own mind, a symbol of my lack of courage. But it was also vexed because, you know, a stud is sort of gendered. Like, I don't want people thinking that this is like some bro conversation because that's decidedly not what I do. And... Even like the uh, sound of it, studs, is like really kind of reeking of a masculinity that I don't think that I exude and that I don't kind of hope to foster. And so I had been uncomfortable with the title from the outset. And oh, I should tell you this. Um, I do listen to WTF with Mark Maron. Yes. Uh, yes. I'm, I'm an avid listener of his show. So... Marin knew from the outset when he named it WTF that it was a problematic title, but he just went with it. And he's always begrudged the title because it obfuscates the complexity and the nuance of what he does there. And so, you know, falling on a sword that I sharpened myself, I'm like, I'm just going to name my podcast like Mark Marin and I'll just share the regret, you know, that he has. And, um, and I think ultimately it was the gendered nature of it that made me finally come around to feeling like I have to rename it. Do you want to know what the new title is? I do. The title was actually proposed by a patron of the podcast uh, called Carl Hauk. And heretofore, studs will be called For a Living. Do you like uh, it? What do you think? Be honest. I don't dislike it. I I have a certain connection to studs. And the funny thing is my real connection to studs is about the game show, but it's the Ben Stiller show's spoof of studs, which was Amish studs. And so, <laughs> so every time, so every time that your podcast comes up, when I download a new episode and I see it, I, I, I get a laugh because I, I love that particular sketch. And then uh, if I listen to the show, I get uh, a, an excellent conversation to balance out the, uh, the humor that I get or the silly self-indulgent moment that I have. Um, and, and for a living, I think works for sure. And it may, makes it clearer to people who don't know what the show is 
pretty quickly what the show is. And even someone who listens to the show, unless they listen to your intro where you're talking about Stud Circle, might not still be like, what? Why? Why? <laughs> so I think it's an improvement. Um, at the same time, it also reminds me of just that kind of uh, cheesy sitcom. It's a living, you know that, uh, <laughs> that that would be that would be my only my only downside there. But let me ask you let me ask you this part because I don't I don't you didn't quite address it and it's it's fine uh, that you didn't, but I'm gonna force you to. Uh, <laughs> did you see Did you see yourself? Uh, I mean, in in making the show uh, to some extent uh, a, a tribute to Studs Terkel. Um, did you see yourself as a stand-in for him, and how has that changed, or has that changed over time to where you are asserting more of your personality and not hiding behind "I'm doing his bidding" kind of thing? No, I never saw myself as a stand-in for him. Those are shoes too big for me to fill. Despite the name change. The aspiration of the podcast remains the same, right? To magnify the voice of working people, to do my small part, to hedge against like political pablum and celebrity navel gazing. And that hasn't changed one bit. I don't know if that's answering your question. Like the show. The show hasn't yet evolved from its initial impetus. It's it's indeed the same. Okay. Well, you I mean you have done thematic. I mean you you've gone to you, this season uh, this last season was a thematic season about educators. Yeah. Um do you see that as something that you want to continue uh, a thematic approach or uh, is it just whatever strikes you at a given time? Right. We're wrapping up this season on educators. The forthcoming season is going to explore the working lives of artists. And then the season thereafter, I'll be co-hosting with two former students and recent college graduates. And we're going to be looking into the working lives of people in their 20s. It was at one point going to be called the Young Studs season, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I guess we have to scratch that little stroke of genius. Um, you know, it might be something like a 30 under 30. We're not quite sure what we're going to call it. But I expect that after that season with people in their 20s, I want to return to the non-themed season. Uh, there are a couple of reasons that I did the theme seasons, and we could talk about that if you want to. But I don't want that to be the defining feature of the podcast moving forward. Like I want to be at liberty to take deep dives into this theme or that. But I definitely like the seasons where you know one day it's a virologist, the next day it's a stripper, the next day it's a stand-up comedian. Now you said. It, I think it's interesting that you know you 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 demurred on the idea that uh, of being a stand-in for for studs, Turkle. But I I I mean I, I get it. At the same time, I think you are a stand-in. I mean, you are doing the same work in a different way, of course. But you are giving a platform to people and an insight to the listener as opposed to the reader although I know I know you said he he did a radio show I I never I um, I never heard his radio show I just read the book um 
I mean, you're you're certainly a, a at the very least a kindred spirit, and and it's it's something that, you know, as, as you as you said in your introductory answer, you know, we are looking at, or for a brief moment at the very least, we were looking at workers in a different way, and now we're right back to being rude to the workers at the supermarket yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, like that 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 moment may have passed, but I think uh, I I think it is, I think the work that you're doing is is certainly important, and uh, obviously I particularly appreciate the the focus on on educators, but I want to I, I want to ask a, a question which I'm struggling with myself, other than uh, a, in an arbitrary way, what's a season? <laughs> yeah. How do you determine what a season is in your podcast? So you and I share. Uh, this respect for Mark Marin and being the fool that I am, I thought I could keep up with Mark Marin's pace. And when this podcast started, it was twice a week. And then it went down to once a week. And somewhat recently, in part because listeners were telling me that they couldn't keep up uh, with a weekly show that's 60, 75 minutes long, I went down to bi-weekly once every other week. And so when I started, the notion was kind of like to do twice a week, kind of drown listeners in content and then take a couple of weeks off to let them catch up. And that turned out to be a strategic error. And so the initial impetus for seasons was like, I'm going to, you know, work assiduously. I'm going to hammer away at this. I'm going to give as much content as I can and then step away and leave this breathing room. Uh, but it turned out I couldn't keep up with that pace. My listeners couldn't keep up with that pace. And so the notion of a season was like a sprint and then a rest, right? And then when I went down to weekly, I started developing the idea for the theme season and Part of the reason I wanted to do the theme season is because, as you probably know, Bob, the research suggests that narrow casting and podcasting is much more effective than broadcasting. And so, you know, uh, a season about educators or better yet, a season with special educators or sport educators, you know, would get me a, a bigger audience share. Um, and here I was doing podcasts with, you know, workers from every walk of life. So A and B, A, I wanted to grow my audience. And so that's why I did the season thing and the theme season thing in particular. And B, I wanted the opportunity to take a deep dive into different professions. So that's where the season thing came from. Also, I should say uh, maybe two more things, I guess, about seasons. You know, one is I think it's important to have a space to pause and reflect. And unless we build that into our process, it's that much harder to be metacognitive and reflective. So seasons help in that way. And then another thing, which I don't know if you're going to kind of push in this direction, you know, you probably don't need to, but in the last few seasons, I've been trying to get patrons on board. I have a Patreon page and one of the 
benefit of seasons is that at the end of the season, I can write a newsletter to my patrons. We do this studs working round table where I sit down with three patrons from that season. We talk about the season. We talk about work. We talk about their challenges in navigating the 2020 work landscape. And so having seasons gave not only me a chance to reflect, but it gave some of my most loyal listeners a chance to reflect with me. And so that's why I do the season thing. Now, one thing that you, I mean, you flagged in particular the idea of, uh, you know, sort of the grind of, of uh, producing so much content and, you know, the, the pressure that that puts on you. And, and I totally get it, seeing as though I am heeding your advice and I am starting my second season and I'm going to a bi-weekly schedule as opposed to the weekly schedule. But I wanted to know, uh, is there anything, any other lessons that, you, that you've taken away from all of the podcasting that you've done? I mean, you've got 50, 60 episodes of Studs, and then we'll talk about the other podcasts as well. Uh, you know, what have you learned, Dorothy? <laughs> um, a lot. A lot. I'm really grateful to have learned a lot. I mean, I guess perhaps the most important thing I've learned is that, you know, podcasting is such a sacred space. It's such an empowering medium. I really think that the medium brings out the best in everybody involved. You know, I think podcasting really challenges us to listen really closely, which is, of course, critically important, especially in these times. You know, I am endlessly inspired by the sense of empathy and the sense of connection that I feel. You know, we're just having regular conversations, but there's some stakes involved, I suppose you could say. And those stakes encourage us to be a little bit more precise and concise in our language, and it encourages us to listen more. And that's probably like the biggest lesson I've learned. And I've also learned that there's an audience you know, Bob, you and I aren't the only ones who are sick of this political pablum and celebrity gossip. Like, people want to hear from and about regular people. And I should say this too, man. Like, I think I've learned how willing people are to, to share when they know that you're listening. I've been so heartened by people's willingness to share with me. Like, I, I gotta admit, I, I feel a little emotional about it even now. I just, I think it's awesome. And so I've learned a bit about how to listen. I've learned a lot about how to leave space, which requires me to trust the edit. You know, <laughs> I've learned that editing is such a grind. But here's another thing. And you know, you do a similar thing. Like my favorite part of this process is probably like just thinking about the guest for weeks leading up to the conversation, just like imagining their job, imagining what they're going to say. Like, I love that, you know, <laughs> and then like the conversation itself, the thing that I'm recording, sometimes I like that. Sometimes it's really stressful for me. Sometimes it's stressful for me because I feel it being stressful for them. You know, I'm always having to watch the clock. I'm 
thinking about what I'm going to have to edit. I, I, you know, it's, that's hard. I, there's joy in it, but it's not my favorite part. But if my favorite part isn't the prelude to the conversation, listening to people slowly, quietly in the wee hours of the night when my wife and kid are sleeping as I'm editing these podcasts is so joyous because I get to hear them, not just for what they're saying, but for what's behind what they're saying. I get to really meditate on their, their ideas, and I get to make some edits that help to bring those ideas forward for the listener. And I've learned a bit about how to do that. I have a lot more to learn about editing, um, but I've learned that. Um, let me, I, can I, I hope you don't mind. I know the show is called Bob's Just Asking, but if Daniel can ask Bob, what did you learn from season one of Bob's Just Asking? I think the, the f- first thing would be that, I mean, something I already knew, which was that um, stealing from the, the, one of my favorite moments in Pulp Fiction is when the, when Uma Thurman's character Early on in the date with John Travolta or the night with John Travolta, she asks, do you listen or do you wait to talk? Yes. And I, I, I that resonated with me right away because I am clearly a wait to talk person. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so are. similar to you, <laughs> similar to you, I have to be disciplined to, to not talk, to not interrupt and force myself to listen to do something that isn't quite as natural and um, obviously, I'm not waiting to talk because the whole show is is supposed to be the other person. I don't want it to be a, really about me. I want it to be myself as a stand-in for other people. But it, it, it's interesting. Like, I, I there's a certain. I think I'm good at right at, at asking questions, and uh, it is a real challenge. Just like you said, I mean, there there's for me the the stress that I have isn't so much watching the clock, and it's it's more about Am I going to continue to pay attention? And I'm, <laughs> am I really, you know, am I really, am I going to lose my focus? Are they going to stop talking? And I'm not. Am I going to have something good to say, or to to elicit some to elicit the next really good thing? Um, some of these interviews I do scrupulous preparation for, and I've got fifteen to twenty questions prepared, and I've done a couple where I had virtually nothing. Um, those are the ones where obviously, um, you know, I've got to be, I've got to white knuckle it about (laughs) thinking furiously about what is the next question as they're, you know, as they're winding down their answer. But the, to get back to your question, I mean, it's, I've learned something about myself. I'm hoping that I'm becoming a better person in tempering my impulsiveness of, uh, you know, of, of either making the conversation about myself or or, or about what my, what, what you know, what my agenda is, and my goals have always been worthy. I think in terms of the the podcast, and it's just making sure that I follow through on that, and and highlight the 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 person who I'm who I'm interviewing and their expertise. Yeah, I'll tell you this. I think you're right. I think you're actually great at asking questions. And I hope that you're able to, you know, continue to enjoy the fruits of your labor, right? Like if you've asked a great question, it's nice to be able to sit back and listen to that person grapple 
with the right question that's asked in the right way with the right tone at the right time. So like I said, I think you're doing a bang up job. I really enjoy your (laughs) podcast. So I hope you can grant yourself the grace of continuing to, to listen to your guests the way you clearly do. Well, thank you very much. Um, what is it that you do in terms of, I mean, you, you have your speaking style, uh, you're very methodical and thoughtful um, in, in your approach. I'm wondering, like, what do you do to, to set your interviewee at ease uh, to make sure that they are, I mean, Marin, <laughs> Marin will, you know, will start his interview without the interviewee even knowing that it's happening because it's just so conversational. Yeah. Um, do you have any tricks of the trade for me? Yeah, Bob, I don't know if these are like tricks per se, and maybe you could tell me if you do these things. But as of season three, I arranged a phone call with my interviewees before, like weeks before the recorded conversation, just so that we could hear each other's voices. Like if they were people that I knew, then we could use that time to catch up a little bit and, you know, get that out of the way. Sometimes I'm interviewing like you, you know, students that I haven't talked to in a decade or more or old friends that I'm out of touch with. And so, you know, I'll I'll check in with them and we'll swap stories and you know, but if they're people I've never met, it's like really useful to, you know, share with them what the mission of the podcast is, you know, and I tell them that, you know, I'm not doing anything investigative. I'm not trying to uncover any greater truth. I'm not going to push into anything that they're uncomfortable about. And then like I ask them if there are topics or themes that they're not so comfortable talking about like we're trying to establish the contours of the conversation we're trying to establish some boundaries if there are boundaries and then i like to ask them you know what they like to discuss like what are the parts of their job that they like to talk about um and then in that phone call i always give them the first two questions and the last two questions the first two questions are in order how do you describe what you do yeah, just let them, whatever they want to say. You know, it could be a sentence, a paragraph, a page. I don't care. And the second question is, how did you get on that path? You know, give me a little story. And then the last two questions ask for uh, a professional triumph and a professional failure. Um, and so we do that in the pre-call. And then when I get them on the horn and we're doing the interview, before we hit record, I tell them the following. I say, you know, I'm really grateful that you're doing this. I've been super excited. I've been thinking about you. I'm sure you've been thinking about it too. Let me just remind you of a few things, right? I tell them, it's really easy for me to cut the dead space. So when I ask you a question, you can take three minutes of silence until you get it, until you feel you have an answer. I don't mind a bit. This isn't a bar conversation No one's going to interrupt us. It's just you and I, and my goal is to share with our listeners what you do and how you feel about it. So take your time. And I tell them, you know, don't be nervous about ums or uhs. Like, I can cut ums really easily. Don't worry about that. And just know that when you start an answer and you get halfway down the road and you lost track of what you're saying and you're not sure you wanted to say that at all, 
Just be like, hey, DL, can I start that one over? And the answer is always yes. You know, and I tell them that after a day or two, they look back on what they said and, you know, they're not comfortable with the way they frame something. Maybe they felt too cynical or negative about something. I'll cut it. I'll cut anything they want as long as they tell me within a couple of days. I don't want them coming back to me after it's aired and saying, cut it like that. That I can't do. And no one ever has. So I try to, in answer to your question, right? I try to make them feel comfortable by creating space for them to slow down. I think podcasting is kind of like a slow medium. I want them to slow down. I want them to be deliberate. I want to work with them to create a record of sort of where they're at in their work life at this moment. But if there's a trick, because you did ask if there's a trick, here's one trick that I I think I'm reasonably comfortable divulging. You know that first question, how do you describe what you do? I ask it. And 15 or 20% of the time, the answer doesn't come out very well. It lacks clarity or maybe it's too clear and sort of like, you know, uninspired, uh, methodical almost. And it's just kind of built on like the nervousness of that. Like they had thought this through in their head and then, so I just listen. And then, you know, I ask them how they got on that path. And then we go through and we're, you know, 90 minutes later, they're like, oh, thanks. That was, that was great. That was a great experience. You were, thanks for listening. You were really kind. And, you know, people are really generous, you know. And if they say that, I might say this. Can I ask you for one small favor? Invariably, yeah. Can I ask you to describe what you do? Now that we're done and you're a little more comfortable, in 10 seconds, I'm going to say, how do you describe what you do? And then I do it. And invariably, Bob, their answer is infinitely better the second time. And so whatever discomfort they had at the beginning comes out in the edit. I I like virtually everything you said there, and I do almost none of it. And the main thing is that this is an investigatory interview <laughs> and I'm coming after you. Yeah, I'm ready for you. I know you, Bob. I know I know how you roll. I'm on my toes. Literally, I'm on my toes right now. Oh. I can't see you because we're not uh, we're not sharing video today. That's another trick. Dude, I'm done with video. I'm sick of looking at screens. I don't like the pressure of my guests looking at me when I'm like taking notes on a piece of paper. I think that makes them nervous. Um, I see this as an auditory medium. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes guests a lot more comfortable. I think they're more comfortable knowing that they're encouraged to look out the window, stare at the ceiling, pick their noses. I don't care what they're doing. That's very interesting. I, my thought was that the video would, you know, since they know they're not being filmed, but they are perhaps able to better make a connection, but maybe not. Um, I might uh, discuss this with some of my former guests and see what their, what their thought process is on that. In talking to a wide variety 
of professionals in all sorts of different different works of life or walks of life and works of life <laughs> did you find any particular commonalities did you you know is there any theme about how people think of their own work or you know how how it relates to their their lives their identities what is there anything that 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 was a discovery to you to see that there was something that the stripper has in common with the grave digger or whatever. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, there are tons of them. I mean, if you want to talk about the stripper, Drea Doré, she's a stripper and a burlesque dancer. You know, what she talked about most and what she was most passionate about in her dialogue was creating community. Not just between the strippers or between the strippers and the DJ or the strippers and the DJs and the bouncers, but between the performers and the audience. Like she sees her role as like helping people to thrive in a community setting. That's not usually what most of us think of when we think of strippers, but that's how she sees her work. And the same is true of one of America's leading virologists out of the University of Wisconsin, Dr. David O'Connor. He was most interested in talking not so much about the technical dimensions of his work, which he probably knew I would hardly understand, but about what it feels like to work in the lab with undergraduates and grad students and his colleagues of many, many years, about being part of a community. And like, that's what people thrive in. Like, that's what people like to talk about oftentimes when they talk about their work. You know, and they also like to talk about being there for others, like being of service. I have an old pal who is a, a cybersecurity expert of some proportions. Brilliant dude, one in a million guy. I thought that he'd be most passionate about talking about you know, defeating Russian bots that are trying to infiltrate a state medical care system, which he did. But what he was actually most enthusiastic about was talking about how in doing that, people's medical records are safer, hospitals are safer, automobiles are safer, we're all better off because of the work that he does. Like I kind of always thought, cause he makes a, an extraordinary amount of money. He's very, very successful. I kind of always thought that he did it for the buck in a way, or he did it because that's where the skill set was that could bring him the buck. But I, I was wrong. Really, I was just wrong. He just likes trying to make communities safer. And I, I'm ashamed to admit this to you, Bob, but it's, it's, true. You know, my brother was on the podcast. My brother's a very successful financial advisor. And I always kind of thought that my brother did it because he's got like materialistic sensibilities. He likes nice stuff, big houses and all that. <laughs> but I don't really think that he cares that much about any of it. I think he does his work as a financial advisor because he really wants to give advice. He sees himself as a teacher. Like by the end of that podcast, I realized that he and I basically do the same job. We're teachers trying to help people to prepare for a more stable and sane future for themselves. 
The only difference is that he makes like eight times more than me every year. You know, in terms of commonalities, being part of a community, uh, feeling like you're serving others, those themes seem to come up in different ways among most of my guests. When you've been taking much more of a laser focus or at least a, a thematic focus on education, which of course is your own career, uh, what did you learn about teaching or about educators, I should say, because uh, you have a wide range there. What did you learn about educators that maybe you didn't know before you went into the podcast? A lot. And I actually, you know, kind of feared like, oh man, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to learn much this time because I'm talking to my people. I've been doing this for 20 years. And so I purposely like reached out to educators who have like very different jobs than me, like guidance counselors and sport teachers and, you know, choir directors and people who do like very different stuff than what I do, which is basically what you do. And um, I was just wrong. I learned a ton in every episode. Uh, you know, I learned like, I don't know, like sport teachers get a bad rap, I think particularly in the US, right? Like they don't have to grade homework and they don't have to write lesson plans maybe. But I had my buddy Nate Calhoun on the podcast and he was talking about the physical toll that job takes on his body. Just like going home exhausted every day and, and suffering from hearing loss, you know, screaming kids in the gymnasium all day long. I mean, that's a tough gig, man. That's a grind. You know, I also learned how critically important it is just to meet young people where they are. Like the different dialogues. You know, my guest shared with me all sorts of different language to explain how they do that. But I just found it so heartening and so heartwarming how and why teachers of various fields and disciplines just meet people where they are. And they do that because they're empathic. Look, man, you and I have been in this game for a long time, and we, we know how empathy is at the core of effective instruction. But I also, in this season, taking deep dives into the lives of educators, I've learned how vulnerability is essential to fostering empathy. And I really kind of feel like, like vulnerability is the red thread that binds so many of these conversations I had with educators. It's been a remarkably edifying season. I've been grateful to all of my guests. It's been pretty awesome, man. I don't know how many of them you've heard, but it's been a great experience for me. I've heard about, I think, four of them at this point. I'm very lazy with my podcast listening. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if you got your own, it's hard sometimes to listen to others. It is, but uh, I, 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 I've been enjoying them, of course, and um, I do think that particular point about you know the the about empathy and vulnerability and the connection that that effective teachers have to have with their students, you know. One could be effective and just be a, a cold automaton, I suppose, and 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 it, I mean that's still possible, but it's not going to be transcendent. And uh, the people that you you spoke to, and and many of them, you know, even if they were just ordinary educators, they still have those characteristics. I mean, 
think the average educator is, is, is pretty damn impressive in, in what they do. And most people couldn't, couldn't bear the thought. I mean, just, I mean, I couldn't bear the thought of doing the, uh, a, a physical education teacher's job. And, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and I know like, I think if you ask my wife of all of the professions in the world, what would be the last one she would do? It would probably be a school teacher. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. take takes a particular mindset personality that, uh, you know, and, and, uh, so I, I appreciate it's masochism. Uh, that's masochism. Sure. I appreciate the, uh, <laughs> the, the celebration of, of educators that, that you've been doing. Um, well, let's, Thanks, let me man. ask you my last question on, on studs before we move on to a couple uh, other topics. Um, if you, uh, had to pick among your children, uh, now, of course, you only have one in real life, but if you had to pick among your your <laughs> individual podcast episodes uh, oh, no. and to, to, to force feed somebody one, the, the one that you think is going to hook somebody. Uh, <laughs> you had to ask. I did. Uh, I mean, I can't, man. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Um it's impossible for me, but I will tell you this. Uh, there's this concierge called Julian Gentle, former student of mine uh, in Berlin 12 years ago. That episode got mad listens. Uh, a lot of people speak really fondly of that one. Then maybe here's another side to it. There's this guy called Sam Tatel, and he is a companion to elderly people. And I thought that episode was awesome but it didn't get the listens that i thought it deserved i wish like thousands of more people would have listened to sam tatel i would say the same by the way of the you'd love this one uh an assistant united states attorney julie stewart she was spot on she was amazing one of my best guests but also didn't get maybe the listens that uh it, it deserved um what else? There's this guy, Justin Jackson. You should listen to this one if you haven't yet. He owns Transistor.fm, which uh, is the hosting service that I have my podcasts on. And Justin has insights into working that will definitely change the way you think about work. So he and I like had like a really uh, fruitful and bubbling dialogue because we both share a passion for dialogues about work. But I don't know. I can't pick one. Can you pick one? You only have what eight or ten to choose from. What, what's your favorite? Is it is it um, the the Indian dude uh, Thacker? Uh, I forget his first <laughs> I'm an, name. I'm a Thacker. I think that was my favorite because uh, it was the first one where I you know I had an outline of questions, but I uh, for me you know selfishly, uh, doubly selfishly, one because Amin is one of my favorite people in the world, but also. Uh, I felt like I nailed it in terms of knowing yes. when to ask the follow the right follow up questions and you were great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no, really. Oh, you know, I'll give you I'll give you a little more to your answer. I didn't think about this. I can't tell you what my single favorite episode is, but I can tell you that it's my single favorite because I did an awesome job, mm -hmm. and without me, um. It really would have gone cattywampus. Uh, it would have it would have fallen off the rails, and of course, for obvious reasons, I won't tell you which one that is. Right. But 
I have an episode that's a favorite because I'm really, if I if I'm allowed to be proud of myself of these course. days, I was proud of the way that I navigated some of the feelings around that episode and right. um, that one, that mysterious one, <laughs> was a favorite. So, well, I mean, you gave you gave four specific ones that people, if they want to seek out your podcast, they can pick the one that obviously that the profession or your description was something that would resonate with them. And, you know, so I imagine, you know, the the uh, elderly uh, episode, which you sp- spoke so highly of, it, it just doesn't have, like, necessarily the curb appeal of, you know, it, it for, for some people. But, you know, it depends on one's, you know, one's perspective and personality. If they're not listening to every episode, I think we both actually... Uh, to a large extent, uh, at least initially, before you before you ruined it all by going thematic, um, <laughs> had had kind of had the idea of, you know, not everyone's going to listen to every single episode. They're just not going to be interested in in you know in in whatever the maybe they're not interested in India, but they are interested in uh, in uh, the next episode's going to be about an air, airline pilot. And, uh, you know, and like, or they like coffee and, you know, and, and I figured, although, you know, the idea of narrow casting you talked about before, um, like I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying to build a huge audience. My hope is that the audience that I build will come from people checking out one episode that they, that hooks them because it's the topic. And then they're like, well, maybe I'll listen to something that I'm less interested in and, you know, and 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 that, but I like the the premise. Uh, once yeah. the, once they've been hooked, um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, like I said, I think you're doing a bang up job. I I wish my first season was as polished as your first season. I, I think you know you got a listener in me. That's for sure. Oh, thank you very much. Now, Studs is not your only podcast, or. Uh, uh, for a living is not your only podcast. Yeah. In addition, yeah. Uh, in your capacity as a high school educator, you have an AP comparative government podcast, and you oversee a student podcast. Let's talk about Kogopo first. Okay. Once I get over that name, um, how much work? You don't like it? <laughs> I have a I have a weird thing about about shortened words and portmanteaus and like I I I, I don't know what it where it comes from. It's irrational. Uh, I but think I, it's because your name is Bob. I, <laughs> I just went on a rant. I don't know if it was yesterday or today <laughs> when uh somebody oh I know what it is our our uh, our attendance and and grading system is called is is called Genesis. And a kid referred to it as Jenny today, and I, I I jokingly blew up at him, and you know, and then I and I talked about how it was the worst shortened thing I'd heard since Stuco, which I don't know if you use that over there, but Student Council, uh, just a couple of years ago, people started saying Stuco, and I I just hate it. I mean, for one thing, it looks like Stucco, and it's a it's a stupid name. Um. Yeah, choose your battles, Bob. I, 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 I don't. You, you know <laughs> clearly, that I don't. Clearly, yeah. I mean, that's that's in our yeah. blood. We don't choose our our battles. Uh, yeah. How much work goes into the individual Kogopo episodes, and uh, how much of it is like building off of a, a lecture or a lesson plan that you might have already had, and then you expand it? Yeah, look, I'm really starting to dig this new project of mine, the AP Comparative Government and Politics podcast, or the Kogo Pod. You know, for your listeners who don't know, the Comparative Government and Politics course 
analyzes the structures and functions of the governments of six very different countries. We go from Britain, Russia, and China to Nigeria, Iran, and Mexico. We talk about their political systems. We talk about the political culture. We talk about the history that informs that culture and those political systems. And I've been teaching this class for, you know, 15 years or so. And over the course of that 15 years, I have developed uh, a stable of lectures that, you know, I become increasingly proud of, if I may say so, as time goes on. And I think that I'm able to, at this point, offer some precise, concise, challenging lectures. And I think some students show up in my class for those lectures, right? And when I do my class evaluations at the end of the semester and at the end of the year, you know, the lectures get a very high praise. I'm very uncomfortable being self-congratulatory or, or, or taking praise at all, but like, it's very kind of them. Students have always been very kind about the lectures. And of course, I say that in this context where like teachers aren't supposed to lecture <laughs> and everything's supposed to be student-centered. And I'm on board with that. Most of my class isn't lecture. My theory has always been that if you're going to lecture, it better be extraordinary. It better be polished. You better bring it. <laughs> and I have lectures that are 135 minutes long. And I do it. You know, I gear up for it. Like there's an extra cup of coffee, you know? I'm, I, and so when the pandemic hit and we couldn't meet face to face, I was looking for a vehicle to share my ideas with my students. And I had done some YouTube lectures, you know, like Screencastify, but I really felt that like a lot of my students, like they just had enough of looking at screens yeah. during homeschooling. And frankly, I had enough of it too. I just couldn't, man. I just couldn't countenance another moment of staring into a computer camera. And so I took a little extra initiative and I started carefully recording my lectures in a podcast form. And I got to tell you, I've been really grateful for and heartened by the response. Not only do my students listen to this, um, but evidently students around the world listen to it. Presumably some teachers of the course listen to it. I hope that some of the teachers who are like new to the course can use my lectures as uh, a source of intellectual edification, you know, and so Two-thirds of the podcasts are just me talking into a mic, trying to provide the most content-rich, refined, passionate versions of my lectures that I can. And then the other third is me in conversation with students after they've read something, or sometimes me in conversations with students and a special guest, for example, my friend Vincent Okwicheme, he is formerly an executive at Shell Oil, Nigeria. Very bright, clever, kind, compassionate person. Honored to call him a friend. He always comes into my classes. Well, pandemic, he can't come into class. We did a Zoom call 
We recorded each channel separately. All the kids got to ask their question. I put the pieces of the podcast together. And now if anybody ever wants to listen to my students ask questions of this distinguished gentleman, my dear friend, they can do that. And hopefully it's a little bit of a keepsake for the kids too. You know, maybe in, you know, two or three or 10 years as the mystic chords of memory weave their magic, my kids will want to go back and, you know, dive into that conversation. So that's what the Kogo Pot is. It's a labor of love. And hopefully it's helping some people, students and teachers alike, learn about the politics and political culture of the countries in the course. The comment about um, lectures is something that I fully endorse and agree with, and my students typically feel the same way, where uh, when, I, when I get feedback from my students about what they liked and didn't like about the course, uh, consistently they want more lecture, not less. And, uh, you know, administrative-wise, you know, they follow the trend, which, of course, as you said, everything has to be student-centered. And I had a supervisor once tell me that, of course, they like, when I, when I mentioned the lecture, of course, they like lectures because they don't have to do anything. And it's like, no, no, that's not it. It's uh, some people are, are good at lectures and, and some people are really, you know, really value a, a well-constructed lecture. And I have to say, uh, you know, my my knowledge of the world is quite limited when it comes to the you know the six countries necessarily you know, that that uh, that are in in comparative government. But I listened to a couple of 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 your podcasts, and I was blown away by the uh, the the detail and the structure of you know. I just thought it was uh, I thought it was so far above what. A normal lecture would be that I, I I just assumed that you had to have augmented them with <laughs> with something you know far beyond it specifically for the podcast. But now I just want to take your class. Yeah, thanks for the kind words. And look, man, just like you, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a professional development seminar being lectured by someone ad nauseum about how I shouldn't lecture. And I think teachers just have to play to their strengths. You know, look, I'm probably best at asking questions, just like you, sitting in the class with my students, peppering them with questions. That's about as good as I get. But secondary to that, I have been researching meticulously for 20 years. I've been listening to students. I've been reading I've been watching documentary films. I, I've been thinking. I, I think, Bob, I'm like one of those people who, when I'm doing it right, I'm quiet and the voices go away and I can think about something clearly. And in doing that, I've developed a couple original ideas some of them are, you know, just variations on themes that I've explored. And like, I take a lot of pride in sharing the ideas that I fought hard for with young people. And, you know, we all got to play to our strengths. I don't know if this sounds hubristic, but I feel reasonably confident in my capacity to deliver complex ideas to students. And I'm happy now with the podcast, I'm able to not just 
talk to my students directly, but to talk to other people's students as well. So that's what the Kogo Pod is. I wouldn't be concerned that it sounds hubristic. I would be concerned about the voices in your head. <laughs> that's yeah, schizophrenia, the struggle's my real. Yeah, the, str- <laughs> the struggle's real. Yeah. I got one last question for you. One last sort of okay. category. Maybe there's a follow-up, but uh, I know that you have a, a student organization um, I believe it's called Ideas. Um, I don't know what that stands for, or if it does stand for something. Um, but I'm particularly uh, curious about it because you have a po- they have a podcast, and I've taken on the advisorship of a podcasting club, and I think I want to do something quite similar to what you're doing, uh, focusing on race and ethnicity and giving students, elevating student voices, uh, giving them a platform to explore a bunch of these topics. So if you could just tell me about what you're doing with your students. Yeah, sure. Well, I know that you have a certain allergy to uh, acronyms and portmanteaus, um, but IDEAS is indeed an acronym uh, that I created. I like it. You can tell me what you think. Uh, IDEAS stands for Identity, Diversity, Empathy, Awareness, and Service. It's an acronym. It's a club. And it's a club that was born of the demand that in our time of crises, in our age of anxiety, uh, when democracy is fragile, when intolerance is increasingly tolerated, we have to intensify our efforts to create a safe but a challenging space to discuss and to celebrate diversity. So the club has weekly meetings. We have a quarterly journal based on a theme. And the Ideas podcast provides a forum for Ideas members and our guests to grapple with some of the vexing questions at the core of that Ideas mission. And like, you know, you know how it is, man. The simple fact of the matter is that the world is rapidly becoming a less safe place for, for black people, for indigenous people, for people of color, for LGBTQ plus communities, for religious minorities, and for thinking people more broadly. And so the Ideas podcast, which is on its third season, we're something like 30 episodes in, is still trying to kind of find a voice and to regularly deliver a high quality product. But I'm super proud of the kids who are involved Uh, It's been a real uphill climb, I got to be honest with you. You know, these are the same types of kids who are interested in a hundred other school clubs and activities, and they're the high flyers academically. So, you know, trying to commandeer their time uh, has been an uphill climb, but it's been a labor of love. I don't know if I answered your question. That's a little bit about the podcast. Tell me about just a, a like a few examples of the types of shows that that they've done. Yeah, so in no particular order, uh, we did a dissection of Hannah Gadsby's Nanette. She's the stand-up comedian. You've seen it or heard of it? I oh, saw it. great! Yeah, you're a big stand-up fan. That's right. Um, so we did a deep dive into Hannah Gadsby's Nanette. We did an episode where we discussed what is to be done about some of the more problematic Berlin sites. For example, you'll be interested to know perhaps that we have a train station here, not too far from where my school is, called Uncle Tom's Hütte, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And we uh, debated whether that should be renamed. We have Soviet 
war memorials. We talked about the Holocaust Memorial and some of the artistic and architectural problems around the Holocaust Memorial. And it was this discussion about, you know, remembrance and justice. Tell me more about the Holocaust Memorial, because I've seen it. I've been there. Uh, and uh, I thought it was, I mean, I, d- I didn't take a deep di- a deep dive into interpretation of it, but it it felt powerful to me. So what uh, what am I missing? What's the what's the difficulty there? So the Holocaust Memorial is right by the Brandenburg Gate, and as such, it's tourist central. And tourists come, and most of them realize that they're in the Holocaust Memorial, uh, though there's not a big neon sign saying that. But tourists are there, and they're on holiday, and they're having fun. Sometimes they've been drinking. Sometimes they're just kids. Sometimes they're kids drinking. And... You know, is it okay to, you know, smile and take selfies? Is it okay for little kids to run around through the memorial and be kids, you know, seven-year-olds? If it's okay for seven-year-olds to run around the memorial, is it okay for 15-year-olds to run around the memorial? Or climb on it. Or or climb on it or picnic on it. You know, is it okay if you're Jewish to picnic on it? Can I picnic on it? These are real questions. You know, when I said that the podcast seeks to grapple with challenging issues, like vexing issues, to me, that's a vexing issue. And the kids really, you know, they they disagreed and they had a hard time drawing boundaries about what is acceptable behavior in this sacred space. So that was one episode. Um, we always have an episode that dovetails with the journal that we release quarterly. So the last journal was about labels in Gen Z. And so we had a couple of the authors of the articles to the journal on to talk about their piece that they contributed. Sometimes, and we have one of these coming up, we reach out to the school community and we invite them to send us a little MP3 in response to a question we asked. And last time we asked what does Pride Month mean to you? And we got, I forget, 20 or 30 submissions. And we just sort of stitched them together. You know, we cleaned them up a little bit for the most part, though. We just stitched them together, put a little bit of music between them, and gave a broad array of responses to how the Kennedy School Berlin feels about Pride Month. And some of the responses were really rich. Some of them were really emotional, Uh, They made me emotional, at least. So we do things like that. One of our huge successes, (laughs) we did a podcast about Juneteenth, where we sought to educate the community about Juneteenth, obviously not something that too many Berliners are talking about. And we published it not knowing that the next day there was going to be a debate in Congress about it. And the United States Congress that day decided to establish June 13th as a national holiday, and President Biden signed that into law. And so we, as the Ideas Club, took credit for that. (laughs) So we have a bunch of different formats, and we're not really committed to one or the other. And, you know, you kind of get it, right? All of these different episodes drive at similar types of questions about justice and respect and dignity and hope. What a fantastic place to wrap it up. Daniel, your work uh, with your students as a teacher in your comparative government uh, work and your 
work as a podcaster is inspirational, and I hope that I can direct all eight of my listeners to your work. <laughs> and uh, hopefully uh, in, in between seasons, I'll catch up on <laughs> on some of the episodes yeah. that I've missed. Thanks so much for, for being a guest today. Bob, thank you so much for having me. I really meant it when I said it. It is such a joy and such an honor to be able to inaugurate your second season with you. I really believe in your project, and I think you're doing a bang-up job. And it's been such a joy to use the podcast format as an opportunity to reconnect with you. You know, I haven't seen or, or really spoken with you in a number of years, and it's just so great to capitalize on this medium to reconnect with you. Um, I'm a big supporter of you. I'm a big supporter of your podcast. So thanks a million for having me on. Thank you. Thanks again. Thanks again.